Thessalonians 5. And we're going to continue talking as we have been uh, through this book about Paul's concern for that we know that the coming of the Lord is an important matter. This is something that we have not hit a lot on as a church, quite honestly. We have not been one of those churches that brings out charts and graphs about the end times. Um, We have not focused on that a whole lot, and I think there's some dangers in not focusing on that. Uh, There are some dangers in focusing too much on that, but we've been maybe more in the first camp that we haven't uh, spent as much time as the New Testament does, and it does quite often, talk about the future hope that we have of Jesus Christ's return. And so about four out of the, out of the five weeks starting last week are going to be about this as we look at the end of 1 Thessalonians and then look into the, the three chapters of 2 Thessalonians in order for us to see what the Scripture says our hope is. And we recognize that, that as we talk about things like the end of the world and the coming of Christ, we're in a, a territory that is strange to many non-Christians. Uh, if you're not sure where your hope is this morning, you're not sure what you trust or believe in, uh, that this can be a strange discussion. Even for Christians, it can be somewhat of a shrug. Like, I don't really know if I should you know, spend time thinking about this or talking about it. What I want to tell us is that um, this is important for us to look at because all of us, whether we realize it or not, are longing for a satisfying ending. I would argue that, that whether we're conscious of it or not, we live our lives as if we are in a story. Stories have beginnings, they have middles, they have climax, they have uh, action, rising action, they have endings. And I think the, the reason that we like movies and the reason that we like books and the reason that we're so upset when the ending isn't right is because we are built to live in a story. This, this is innate in us. C.S. Lewis talks about this. If this is our desires, where did these desires come from? It must be the fact that we live in God's story. And so, of course, it is theoretically possible that the end of the world could be random or it could be uh, unexpected. That is theoretically possible. But I would ask you, why is it that we want the satisfying ending? There's something in us that wants to see this come to a close in the right way. And I will tell us that while the details of the Scripture sometimes confuse us, sometimes make us scratch our heads, sometimes make us wonder about things, ultimately what the Scripture tells us is the most satisfying ending to the story. Jesus Christ comes back, and it is the return of the King. The reason we love Tolkien's third book is that Not just because of all the magic, but because of the return of the king, that the kingdom of men, right, are now set in order because of this returning king. And this is the vision that we get in the scriptures, even while we wonder about some of the details. Let's read these first five, 11 verses, uh, first 11 verses of chapter five. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. 
We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. So when we were coming back from our uh, sabbatical last year, we had, we had gone on a huge road trip, 11,000-mile uh, road trip over three months, and we were feeling really good. We were feeling really rested. We were kind of on a high. Um, nothing had gone wrong with our trip. Amazing, like 11,000 miles, no car trouble, no trouble checking into a place uh, to stay or anything like that. Everything had worked out perfectly. And so when we came to San Francisco, uh, which was one of the last legs on our stops, uh, last stop before we got home, we, uh, we were feeling good. We were feeling like, uh, kind of like this was an amazing trip. And um, the trip ended there and before we came home to, to Phoenix. And I, we, we checked into our hotel in San Francisco. I parked my truck uh, on the street, and, and we went and did all the tourist things in San Francisco, into the Fisherman's Wharf and all these things. And, uh, and then we went home and went to sleep. And in the night, there came a thief. There was a thief in the night. They came up to my truck. They bashed the window in, uh, and they, they took whatever was inside. My kids' backpacks... Uh, full of their, you know, memories and stuff from the trip was stolen. And while there wasn't a lot of financially valuable things taken for, from us, it still changed us. It changed our perspective because it introduced a loss or uh, a perspective that we hadn't had over those three months. And suddenly, I saw the signs everywhere. Suddenly, I saw, do not leave valuables in your truck or in your cars at night, signs on the street, warnings all over the place about the vandalism that could take place in that area of San Francisco. They were everywhere, and the truth is, I had seen them before, but I was not able to enter into that warning because I was feeling good about everything else, because uh, there was peace in, 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 our, in our family and everything, I was not able to think that that would happen to us. It changed us. Suddenly I thought, of course, out-of-state license plate, you know, brand new truck sitting there. Like, of course, this would be an object that would be attacked. It changed my kids. Um, if I had asked them before, of course, they're old enough to know what robbery is. I would go and say to them, what, is, what does a robber do? Well, it's somebody that takes someone else's stuff. But they had never experienced robbery before. And so it changed them. It didn't feel like the idea of robbery would happen to them. And so it was easy to ignore the warning signs. And then it was easy to feel the exposure afterwards. 
You know, we often think that life will continue the way that it has always continued. We have a kind of internal bias that, that the, the good things that are happening in life will continue to be good, and the hard things will end soon. We have this bias towards that way of thinking. And oftentimes, if things are going well, relatively well, they're not ever going 100% for anyone, we have this feeling that other things will happen to other people, but not to me. Every cancer patient virtually says the same thing. I just never thought it would happen to me. And so we can have this mentality of life will continue as it is, and we can ignore obvious warnings because we are not awake to them. Even though we may read about them, even though we may see them or experience them on some level, we can still fall asleep. This reality that we need to be awake is what this passage is about. The exposure that the coming day of the Lord should uncover in our hearts to wake us up, because this is how the coming of Christ is described as a thief in the night. Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How are we to think about the coming of the Lord? How are we to be awake to it? I want us to see this today. The Scriptures call us to be patient, awake, and sober about the coming day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? What are we even talking about? Um, in, this is not a new term in the Scriptures. Paul's using here a term that is used throughout the Old Testament in the prophetic books, the day of the Lord. And when that word is used, uh, I'll tell you overwhelmingly, though not exclusively, uh, it's a negative term. It's a, it's a picture of God's coming judgment and justice to his people, or to his, the people that he's created. And the way that I understand uh, this day of the Lord in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, the way I understand prophecy in general, the way that the, the Scriptures uh, use pro prophecy to talk about the things that God is doing, is that we understand that a prophecy can have multiple fulfillments. So in other words, when Amos talks about the day of the Lord or um, you know, when Jeremiah talks about the day of the Lord, they can be referring to different events historically that are going to happen in Israel that can be maybe the exile when uh, Babylon takes away the people of God and they live in exile. This can be a coming day of the Lord. But there's a kind of growing um, picture in the Scriptures of these multiple fulfillments, this coming day of the Lord. Uh, is pointing to a final day of the Lord. And so we can understand that in Scripture, the day of the Lord can refer to a coming historical event and also can refer to the coming of the Lord at the end. So much of what the New Testament talks about, I believe, is talking about a day that is coming. I do think in part the day that is coming was A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was sacked, and this was, uh, th this was this huge event that happened historically, and it affected the church, but it also keeps pointing forward. It keeps pointing forward, and we have, even in the book of Revelation, this coming day of the Lord where there is multiple fulfillments of what God does. He comes both to judge and to redeem. 
There is a positive use of the word, the, the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called the day of redemption, which is what it's called in Ephesians but oftentimes it's referring to the justice and the judgment of God. The Scriptures refer to this as the day, the day of God, the day of Christ Jesus, that day, the great day, or the last day. This is not a small theme in the Scriptures. It actually comes up all over the place. What is that day? It's the day when God comes to redeem and to judge the world. How are we to think about this day? We're supposed to be patient, awake, and sober. Let's look at those together first, that we're to be patient. Paul's main thing that he wants to communicate with him talking about the day of the Lord is this. Know that it's coming, but don't try to figure out when. Know when it's coming, but don't try to figure out when. And in teaching this way, actually we're going to see very closely he's following in the footsteps of Jesus. When Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 5, he's clearly got Matthew 24 and 25 open on his desk. He's writing the same things that Jesus tells us about the last day. There's a little hint here um, at the very beginning in verse 1 where he talks about uh, using this, this phrase, the times and the seasons. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anyone to have anything written to you. That phrase, times and seasons, is a very particular phrase that is used in Acts chapter 1 as well. In Acts 1 verse 6, this is what happens with Jesus. He's about to ascend into heaven. Um, so Jesus is gathered with his disciples. He's been resurrected from the dead. And so this is what he says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know, he says, these times and the seasons. So when Paul is saying to them, uh, you don't really have any need for someone to write to you about this, what he's saying basically is echoing what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, is that you don't need to know the times and the seasons. This is not something that you need to spend a lot of time trying to figure out when it's going to happen. Paul was reminding them, this is what our Lord said. You don't need to know exactly, but you do need to know that it's happening. It's going to happen. You just don't know when. I mentioned Matthew chapter 24 and 25. This is where Jesus talks about this coming end. And here, Paul echoes the same images that Jesus does in Matthew 24. Look at the two images that Paul uses in verse 2 and 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. A thief in the night, first image. Second image, a pregnant woman. These are, in fact, the two images that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and 25 to talk about the coming and end. Both are things that happen, but you can't predict exactly when. Thief in the night. The emphasis there is more 
on the surprise element. A thief comes when you don't know that they're necessarily coming. It will seem random. It is possible also to live your life without ever being robbed. It's possible to live your your whole days without a thief ever coming in the night. But it's also not crazy to think that it could happen in your lifetime. This is the image that Paul uses. The idea of pregnancy is a little more predictable, right? There is, there is a definite end, and so the, the emphasis here is on the uncertain, is to take away the uncertainty of it. This is going to happen. It's unavoidable that this will result. But you don't know exactly when. But it's coming. Both of these events, both of these pictures also cause pain. And so he talks about the sudden destruction that will come upon the world. When we, he says there is this sudden destruction, we need to know that he's not talking about total annihilation. He's not talking about God destroying the world as some view uh, the end of time. That is not what this passage teaches. Rather, there is some destruction that happens. There is some amount of pain that is brought to the world at this time because of the judgment of God. And he just mentions it here briefly, and so I'm just going to bracket off this discussion. In two weeks, we're going to talk about the judgment of God, and we're going to be very straightforward. Look exactly what he says in 1 Thessalonians about the coming judgment. But here, his emphasis is on being ready and being awake So the Bible teaches us, not just here, but elsewhere in Jesus' writings, that Jesus is coming quickly, that that we should be awake because this could happen at any moment, but it also teaches that we should expect a delay. Where does it teach that? Well, the way that Jesus talks about the second coming often emphasizes the delay. In Matthew 24, he gives this parable, this analogy of the wicked servant and master. And the servant is over the house while the master is away. And it says in Matthew 24, 48, that the master is delayed in coming back. From the perspective of the wicked servant, he thinks this master will never come back. So we're, we're told to expect some delay. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. It might be familiar to you that this parable that Jesus told about this master who gives five talents and two talents and one talent to different servants. And then he tells them to, to keep them and to protect them. And so the, the one with five invests it in other things. And the one with two does as well, but the one who only had one talent buries it. But in that story, it says that the master returns after a long time, Matthew 25, 19. I think about the parable of the mustard seed, Matthew chapter 13, where the kingdom of God is like the smallest of all seeds, but then it grows into the largest plant. And that growth is the idea that it takes time, that's slowly developing So the point I'm trying to make is this. The Scriptures talk about the imminency of Christ's return. They talk about that He could return at any time. And yet it also gives us reason to believe that there will be some sense of delay. 
It's very hard for us to determine these things, to know when the end of times is. A lot of times people refer to Jesus in Matthew 24 to say, you will hear wars and rumors of wars, these ideas of cataclysmic events. You can know that the times are near because of these cataclysmic events. Well, putting aside the fact that every generation believes that its cataclysmic events are the wars and rumors of wars that Jesus talks about, We're also a little confused because when we come to this passage, we see a different narrative, possibly a different narrative. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And so what Paul emphasizes here is not that there's these cataclysmic world events going on, but that things seem fine. The point is, there there is always those who are saying peace and security, and there are always wars and rumors of wars, we cannot look to these external signs to say this is when Jesus is coming. We can know Jesus is coming, but we don't know when. The Scriptures even say that Jesus Himself, at least for a time, didn't know when the day of the Lord would be. That's what He says in Matthew 25, that the Son of Man doesn't know the times, that God the Father does. This is a mystery that we don't want to dive too deep into. The mystery is really related to what Jesus knew and when, because the Scriptures also say that He grew in knowledge and wisdom. Is it possible that the God of the universe, we believe Jesus Christ, to grow in knowledge and wisdom? There's, there's certainly a mystery there, but at the time, in His growth and wisdom, He did not know even the plans of the Father. I don't believe that that's necessarily true now. I think the ascended Christ with the Father knows when He's coming back, but that's beside the point. The point is, there is a great mystery about when Christ is returning, and we're not supposed to try to solve it. Every single generation has tried to figure out when Jesus will return. In fact, What I found this week is very interesting. There is an entire Wikipedia page devoted to failed predictions of the return of Jesus. It's very interesting reading. Um, Just every single generation, Hippolytus, the the philosopher in 500 A.D., thought 500 A.D., that's a significant date. It's been 500 years. Certainly, this is when Jesus will return. He actually made that prediction uh, based off of the dimensions of Noah's Ark, of all things. So, there's that. My favorite, Pope Sylvester II, this Pope around 1000 AD predicted that 1000, the year 1000, would be when Jesus returned. And that makes sense if you read the Scripture, I guess, from some level, and you believe in the millennium, the thousand-year reign of of Christ, and if you believe that the thousand-year reign started when Jesus was on earth, then maybe the year 1000 was the day that He would return. Well, 1,000 came and went, and Pope Sylvester thought, oh, I miscalculated. Of course, it wouldn't be the year 1,000. It would be the year 1,033, because, you know, Jesus was 33 years old when he died. My bad, 1,033. Well, that came and went as well. This is just every generation, even John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and Uh, a Scripture-focused guy who would know Matthew 24 and 25, would know 1 Thessalonians 5, would know that the Scriptures say that you cannot know, still made a guess. 
We are to be patient. As far as we know, Jesus will return today. And as far as we know, we are still in the early church. If the, if the church, if church lasts 50,000 years, the year 2000 will be the early church. You think, well, that's not going to happen. Why not? We serve a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. He does not, he's not slow, the scripture says, as some count slowness, but patient, not wanting any to perish. We have no idea when Jesus will return. He could return today. He could return in 50,000 or 100,000 years. We do not know. But it will be soon from viewed from the, from the perspective of eternity. And it will also be in the fullness of time. This is what the scriptures teach. It can be compared almost to thinking about going to the airport. I was thinking about this this week. The airport game is hurry up and wait, isn't it? Hurry up, drive. We've got to get there. We've got to get checked in a certain amount of time before. Wait in line, right? Check your bags. Wait in line for security. You know, hurry up, get to the gate at least 30 minutes before. Wait. The hurry up and wait game. It's possible to be too careful, okay? Some of you are too careful at the airport. You are so focused on not missing your flight, right, that you, you don't have any quality of life before your flight, okay? Some of you, you know who you are, right? It's just like obsessing about getting there on time. I'm there 24 hours early. I'm not going to miss this thing, you know? Uh, it is possible to focus too much on it. It's possible that you could not live your life for that time around the flight because you were so focused on the flight. But on the flip side, of course, it is possible to miss the plane. You can fall asleep at the gate. You can get there too late. So this is the tension that the Scriptures talk about, that we need to care but not get carried away, so to speak. We don't become obsessed with every detail. We don't know what, what, what the, the war in Russia and Ukraine means for the end. We don't know these things. There's so much we can't know. Be patient, but be warned. Because it does come. You can miss the plane. You can fall asleep on the return of Christ. And that's what we want to talk about next more briefly. Not just patient, but awake. Awake. Verse 4, read it with me. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let then us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. We have to be careful that our patience for the return of Christ does not lull us to sleep. Of course, what is meant here is not a physical sleep. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't sleep at night. He's saying, as a metaphor, this alertness to the return of Christ. And I love first, and don't miss this, the confidence that he has in the Thessalonians, who are new Christians, by the way. These are new believers. And he says to them, but you are not in darkness. Very emphatic. Big change of pace. There's a thief in the knife 
night coming, but emphatic, you are not in the darkness. You are in the light. And so he's telling them first, be confident. It's, this is not going to happen to you. One thing I draw from this is that the study of last things should not ever be used to beat up Christians. If you have faith in Christ, this is not a day to be dreaded. This is a day to be looked forward to with hope. Big contrast here. But he also says, don't fall asleep. Because it's possible, verse 5, to be children of the light, to be of the day, and also in verse 6, to fall asleep. So then let us not sleep as others do. What is his point here? The return of the Lord should not be neglected in our thinking. We should think about this and dwell on it and also have concern for those who are children of the night. He's very clear here in his contrast. You all are children of the light. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Let us not sleep as others do. Very clearly, Paul is saying there are those who are asleep to the coming of the Lord. That means we know people who are asleep. They're not alert to God or His Word. It's possible, especially in our circles and in churches like we have, that, that doesn't emphasize you know, the judgment or beating people up with the Scriptures or yelling at people through bullhorns or any number of things that Christians sometimes do to give us a lot of media attention. We are not uh, those who do that. It's possible to abuse evangelism, to throw things in people's faces, to hover over them with the judgment of God, almost with a self-righteousness like it's our own judgment. We have to be careful of that. We don't ever want to do that. But it's also possible to let people sleep who need to be awake. To see their slumber and to speak to that. We should have concern for those who are children of the night. We should ask ourselves, am I awake to the purposes of God? It's not about maturity. It's not about being an excellent Christian and knowing all your stuff. This is a new church. This is the Thessalonica. This is where Paul was for three weeks. They just have the bare bones. We're not talking about knowing all your, your facts. But are you awake? that Christ comes, and this is what the Scriptures say. We need to be patient, awake, finally sober. Sober. Verse 6, read with me. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, another metaphor here. He's talking about being sober, not in the sense of not being actually drunk, though Scripture does speak to that as well. He's talking about being clear-headed, to not be seduced or drop down our guard. In fact, the metaphor here really throughout with both sleeping and drunkenness is, is really in reference to a soldier or a guard, what Paul is picturing is this guard who stays awake in the night. He must be the alert one. And of course, he must not drink because otherwise he will not be aware of the danger. And this soldier 
of course, needs to wear armor. To continue his metaphor, he says, this is the armor of faith, hope, and love. Paul loves this metaphor of the armor of God. He uses it in several times in the scriptures. And we don't need to be overly dogmatic about which piece of armor goes with which thing. He actually mixes up his metaphors sometimes, and that's okay. His point in writing about the armor is to say that we need to be protected. And here he uses two pieces of armor that are both defensive. He doesn't talk about the sword of the Spirit like he does elsewhere. He says here, the breastplate of faith and love and the, and the helmet, the hope of salvation. His point You need to protect your heart and your head. Through faith, hope, and love, the three main Christian virtues, they cover your vital areas. Faith. Do you have faith? Are you someone who has gotten down into the weeds of what you believe? If you haven't done that, if you haven't given much thought, then you will likely not stake your life on the coming day of the Lord. The breastplate of faith and love. You need to increase your faith. Search out the scriptures. Get your questions answered. What he's saying is don't sort of believe in God. Don't cover yourself up with a weak faith. Ask God for more faith. You need this protection. You need to be built up You need to be prepared for what might strike at the vitals of your faith and your life. You need to not just cover your heart, but also your head, your mind. The helmet is the hope of salvation. You, in other words, need to protect your mind with gospel thinking. If you think gospel thoughts, when you dwell on Christ you desire to see him, you will be prepared for that day. You'll be clear-headed. You'll be sober. You'll think, this is what it means for me. I have this confidence that I trust in Christ. How do you have those thoughts? By believing the gospel, the hope of salvation, he says. And so let's talk about it right now. This is the thing that should be on our heads and in our hearts that what happens on that day is not for us. The story of those who say there's just peace and security and are just away from God is not the story for those who have trusted in Christ. It will not happen to you. That's why Paul is writing this. He says, but you, you, you're children of the light. You're not in darkness. You need to know that. God does have wrath. Look, he says in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God does have wrath. He does judge sin. We shouldn't shy away from this. We're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks, the judgment of God. But he says, you put on the helmet of salvation. This does not apply to you. Why not? It has nothing to do with you. God has not singled us out because we are special Rather, it has everything to do with what Christ has done for us. Look at verse 10. This, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Other than John 3.16, 
I don't know that there's a more clear statement about why Jesus came and what he did. He died so that we could live with him. Whether we die on this side of the return of Christ and we are asleep, as we talked about last week, or whether we are alive somehow when he returns, doesn't matter. Whether awake or asleep, we live with him. This is how we put on the helmet of salvation. By reminding our own heads and our own hearts what has been done for us. Not what we can do to protect ourselves, but what Christ has secured for us. And all we need is to be in Him. We can't protect ourselves, but if we're in Him, we are protected. What is your helmet of salvation? I wonder what it is that you put on that gives you a sense of protection, that gives you a sense of meaning and substance to your life, that gives you a hope. He calls it the hope of salvation. That's the helmet. And this is not a question of, of, of selling some kind of religious life insurance where we, we just basically say, you get the comfort of eternal life and just sign up here on the dotted line. It's actually a question of ultimate meaning, whether you're awake now or you're asleep, whether you die or you are alive. These are the questions that we ask. I remember coming across a journal entry from a philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, and a few years ago I read this journal entry. It was from 1980, and he was someone who was not, at least for the majority of his life, a person of faith, and he said this in his journal. The idea that there is no, pers- no purpose, only personal petty ends for which we fight. The idea that we make little revolutions, but there is no goal for mankind. One cannot think such things. They tempt you incessantly, especially if you're old and think, oh well, I'll be dead in five years at the most. In fact, I think ten, but it might well be in five In any case, the world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. There. That's the cry of despair of an old man who will die in despair. But that's exactly what I resist. I know I shall die in hope, but that hope needs a foundation. This is someone who had thought deeply for decades about the purpose of life And he says, I want to die in hope, but that hope needs a foundation of some kind. He wants a future. He wants there to be a goal for mankind. He wants a hope. And he believes that there will be, but right now it's an unfounded hope. It's useless to hope for something without a reason to hope for it. He muses here, I could be dead in five years, he says, but I think I've got ten left in me. but maybe I can die at five. He actually died four weeks later after writing that. Did he find the foundation? Did he die in hope as he said? I hope so. When we ask these types of questions, it's not just about checking off some kind of religious box. It actually goes towards what is true, meaningful for life. What does it mean that we are here? What does it mean that we're part of a story and all of us feel that? 
The scriptures say that we are part of God's story and that it is through Christ and the climax of the story that he died for us so that we might live with him forever. That is the satisfying ending that all of our hearts long for. That is the foundation. If you were foundationless but still want hope, I would say that this is the foundation that you need. Are we awake and sober, clear-headed about what is true or not true? Because we need a foundation. You need a good reason for hope. It's useless to have hope without a reason. Our reason is in Jesus Christ dying so that we could live with him. That is our hope. So we wake up, we put on the helmet of salvation, we remind our heads and our hearts that we have faith. It doesn't have to be strong faith. It doesn't have to be faith that has answered all the questions, but there is faith there. There is love, a growing love of God and of his people, and there is hope in our heads, the helmet of salvation, and we pledge our allegiance to the coming king, and the day of the Lord will not be a day for us of destruction but a day of great joy. Let's pray.